Hi Rod, it's been a while. You were down at uh, F8 last week. What did you What did you find out? Yeah, I had a great time in uh, San Jose. I threw up in my video after I finished. There's a few things. I sort of talked about the responsibility that Facebook has now for building uh, community and looking for the common ground in people. And you could tell that Mark Zuckerberg was feeling the responsibility for some of the political stuff that I think Facebook has contributed to, you know, this confirmation bias where you keep seeing your own stories. And he was really clear on we need to start finding the common ground for people to work work with. And what really rammed home for me, the common ground is business. It's lots of small businesses working all over the world together. You know, the common ground is trade and that we have to do it if we want to create jobs. So that was pretty interesting. But from a tech point of view, the first uh, day was a lot about, um, I think, the threat that Facebook feels about um uh, what's it called? Uh, Snapchat. And um, there was a lot of commentary around uh, Facebook had kind of just ripped off all of uh, Snapchat strategy. And I spent a bit of time with some pretty senior Facebook guys who are in the advertising part of the business, which isn't uh, something I usually have a lot of experience with. But it was um, really interesting. If you look at it from a technology strategy point of view, what uh, Facebook had done is rather than have a, having a closed community which uh, kind of Snap has, they've really opened up their uh, developer community to make it really easy for people to, um, you know, add add all sorts of uh, features and advertising, get brands into uh, the camera that Facebook's building. And it's really super interesting that, you know, they talk about a camera as this new thing. You know, I always thought of a camera was just a camera and there was a camera app on the phone. But what they see is the camera is this portal between individuals and the reality that they want to create and the virtual reality, augmented reality they want to build in. So their approach was to open up a whole lot of APIs, get all the Facebook developers in there and become, um, you know, uh, really get that communities to to take on Snap. So there's quite a commentary following that, that Snap should be looking to sell itself to uh, Disney um, or, or, you know, think about some other options. You know, it's got a 30 billion valuation or something like that. And uh, Facebook is going right hard at them. So the other other really big thing, so that was the, so, so the day one keynote seemed to be all about Snap and uh, uh, the camera. And then day two keynote was a whole lot of future vision stuff, which could be five to ten years out so they talked about um, the pathway to getting to this uh, augmented reality vision of you know having some glasses and everything working or some contact lenses and they went through all the technologies that need to be invented they talked about um, you know how they get wi-fi around cities or put um, broadband connectivity around cities and that led to flying planes and they had this amazing um, uh, super light jet that was half the weight of a toyota prius but had um, the wingspan of a Boeing 737 that they could fly. And then they talked, and this this one was the one that picked, they got most sort of coverage about, was um, building uh, uh, sort of sensors using skin for sound. So they talked about some really big bets. And I think my, my takeaway from the day two keynote is it was Facebook saying, look, we're just like Google. We're making so much money that we can invest in some of these big long-term things. And it was quite inspirational seeing those, but I think the audience wasn't the audience that was sitting in the room. The audience was really Facebook saying, hey, look, we are one of those big tier one technology companies as well. So it was a very worthwhile, um, very worthwhile few days. I wonder, I might be a bit cynical here, but I wonder if, um, I mean, I get the whole AR, augmented reality, whether it's Snap or, I mean, Facebook's going to copy it. Um, 
And at, a, at the surface level, when it's just like this uh, additional capability that you're giving your camera phone and it's, and it's cool and it's fun and it's social and you can share photos with your friends, I actually wonder um, if the byproduct of that is that Facebook is going to see more photographs because you're going to be sharing many more photographs than you normally would. Um, and that Facebook, if they're smart enough about it, will be able to scrape a lot more information from those photos. So they already do things like facial recognition. Um, and the photos that you take with your smartphones these days have GPS and have lots of other metadata, like time of day, GPS. They can do facial recognition to work out where you are. They could possibly look for branding in the background, you know, which your favorite restaurants are. I wonder if there's a kind of subplot here that... Um, Absolutely, it's great fun taking all these cool photos and augmented reality. And there is definite value there, um, whether that's Google Glass or some other kind of information delivery medium. But I, yeah, I, I wonder if, if this is just getting even more granular information about your preferences um, so that they can just learn more about you and serve up even more um, kind of appropriate advertising. I, I wonder if this is a subplot here. But um, I may be reading too much um, crime fiction in my my diet uh-huh. um yes uh, but but yeah, the, the point is well made uh who, who would have thought that um and we're not even getting into kind of um, imaging and machine learning um just taking a photograph of receipts and invoices and and and, and uploading them to your accounting tool who, who would have thought a camera would would have been an essential piece of accounting technology um, 20 years ago. Never mind where it goes next. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. This, and, and that's what, so that's some of the things that's so exciting. All the AI and machine learning that they're um, putting into the camera now, you know, they can, they can basically take a traditional flat photo and map out the three-dimensional services. So even sort of um, photos taken from essentially dumb cameras, they can in post infer a whole lot of things around the objects that are in that photo, the three-dimensional surfaces. And the reason they want to solve that as well is that it allows them to put brands into the photos, which is, of course, a major revenue stream for them. So there's a, a clear thing, um, you know, there's a clear reason that they're doing all of this. So what else is um, interesting? Um, what's caught your eye in the last couple of months? Well, just in the last day, the um, Uber scandal, like uh, Uber scandal number 365, um, that that Uber continues to track users after they delete the Uber app. So there's been howls of outrage around the internet today. Just to balance that out, though, it's interesting because um, people are saying, well, how can you do that? And what, what they seem to have done is they're tracking, uh, they're, they're creating some unique identifier for people on their phone, and then they're, you know, they must link that back to that person visiting websites, and they can continue to track that person, how they use things through the web. So this is actually a t- technique that a lot of the major advertising companies do as well. And there was a few articles that came out later in the day explaining that this was quite normal. But it was super interesting that it looked like um, that Travis got summoned into uh, the headmaster's office, uh, Tim Cook there at Apple for a please explain, and some fascinating articles in the New York Times today around character and values of Uber and of their founder particularly, which were uh, pretty compelling reading. I've I've stopped using Uber. Uh, I've used Uber for a couple of months now. I mean, I, I think that I mean, there's a number of um, kind of un- unfortunate for Uber press stories in the last couple of months, just about the culture and kind of um, issues around diversity, which is always difficult to kind of reflect um, on external stories, and you never get the full detail. But there seems to be enough um, enough 
there that, that points to there being certainly some kind of questionable philosophical philosophical values at Uber when it comes to diversity and uh, and treating people treating their employees well. Um, and so I, um, it's not like I, I decided right that that's it. I'm not using Uber. I just think subconsciously um, th- there's been enough around that around that service that um, just makes me makes me a little uncomfortable um, giving them any over my business at the moment, at least until they clean the rack up. But um, that's I have to say that's been helped by the fact that actually in London it's now easy uh, pretty much to get a cab with um, credit card payment terminals in them. Um, and so if anything else, wherever Uber goes from here, um, I wonder if their legacy, at least in London, has been to move the black cab industry into the modern age where, and, and I'll happily use a black cab if I can um, tap my credit card and pay and pay that way instead of paying with with cash. And there's a couple of other things that it would be great if it then emailed me a copy of the receipt and some of the other polish that you get on Uber. But I think Uber's at a really interesting phase where they're going to have to convince people like me that uh, they are a kind of um, upstanding company and and they respect values of equality and diversity and 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 are a great employer. Um, but I think um, one of the big one of the big advantages they had in London, at least, is gone, and that taxi cabs now take credit cards. So it'll be interesting to see where that goes, um, and indeed whether Uber has a new CEO at some point in the next few months. Yeah, but um, it, does, it, is, just, it is all sort of pointing to this sort of perfect storm of stuff that's happening in the UK, isn't there, with uh, you know the, all the innovation that we're seeing with the fintech providers, some of them who started off as being um, you know, really working on, on a debit card model, a final becoming banks, uh, PSD2, making tax digital, auto-enrollment, all those sort of things, it does feel like there's a there's a perfect storm, which what you've just described is a key part of. So on the subject of London, um, a lot of stuff happening in the UK. I think, I mean, I think we've seen anything like the scale of unprecedented change in legislation and disruption. So we have Brexit, obviously, which is like huge. And we're right in the middle of the kind of political ramifications of that. That's now created the need for a general election in the UK in June, which again is just like huge disruption and kind of huge debate. Um, We have making tax digital. So the UK's tax authority, HMRC, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, is effectively mandating that all tax is going to become digital and not just digital that you go into a web browser and upload it, but literally digital at the point of of capture, um, collation and filing, uh, which if you're one of the UK's three and a half million um, self-employed, sole proprietor or, or partnership businesses, and you're not using digital tools or software in any kind of meaningful way to, to run your business today is, is, is a huge thing you have to consider in the next two years. Uh, and it's not just the small guys, it's everything. So VAT is going to get an overhaul and become completely digital. Uh, corporation tax, personal self-assessment tax, huge digitization of the tax system in a way I, I don't think any other, certainly any other kind of Western developed economy has has gone for it the way that the government and the UK are going for it at the moment. So we have making tax digital, uh, that has implications not just for the businesses, but obviously for the accounting profession. Uh, all small businesses that employ people in the UK have to have a, a pension scheme in the next 18 months. Again, there's like a million of them having to roll out new pension schemes. Um, and it's just all coming together. In the next three years in the UK, 
combined with the the boom we've seen in fintech activity in London. So London was a huge financial um, kind of crucible of businesses and of capital and, and of talent. That has now been kind of mixed with this kind of cocktail of technology since we started um, government support for Silicon uh, Roundabout uh, back in 2011. Huge boom in technology startups in London. They've all started hanging out in the same coffee shops as all, as all the bankers, and we have this new fintech boom, where I think it's safe to say that London now represents uh, early days yet, but this kind of capital um, of the planet for fintech. And we see lots of new disruption in terms of challenger banks. Monzo, Starling, Tide, Loot, Coconut, Atom Bank, just to name a few, uh, all, all completely coming from nowhere, completely digital banks, offering a completely um, differentiated solution to traditional banking. Then you've got the big banks, the traditional kind of top five banks in the UK, so the RBS, Barclays, uh, Lloyds, HSBC, all that, how do they deal with that? And so it's all going off in the UK in the next couple of years, and it's just fascinating having a front row seat in that and being involved in lots of really interesting conversations with all all the stakeholders and protagonists. And, and, and I think the UK will, will, I think, be the kind of reference model for how you digitize banking and digitize engagement with government. I think, I think it's, it's going to be an incredible period ahead. Yeah, so that kind of ties into some work we're doing on this side of the planet. Uh, in, in Australia, over the, over the last year or so, they've uh, created um, electronic e-invoicing as a standard, but it's super interesting the kind of chicken out of actually doing anything, making it, making it mandatory. So some of the work we've been doing with the New Zealand government is to pick up all of the, the work that the Australian government did in e-invoicing, make sure the standard works for here, but we're progressing with government to try to get it mandatory that all government departments both send and receive electronic invoices over the next two years. So, um, you know, with the market share we have here and with government getting on board and the work we're doing with some of the large corporates, um, we should be able to, to to really get the automation connection of transactions from large to small businesses and between small businesses, um, we should be able to make some really positive steps here. And it's interesting, the business case looks great. So with the work that you guys are doing around the UK, around banks making themselves digital, we're also trying to get other parts of the economy um, sending all of their trading documents in that digital format as well. So it's a really interesting how you know things are happening on both sides of the planet, but we're trying to pull those things together. The, the, there's a lot of heat. Uh, I mean, so, so I love, obviously, anything that's new and technological in terms of innovations or, or new, new ways of working. Uh, but not everybody's a fan of um, particularly making tax digital. There's a huge amount of heat and resistance from the accounting profession. Uh, so the business community hasn't really heard of making tax digital yet because it's still being built. And so the people that are closest to are uh, practicing accountants who obviously are representing those small business clients today when it comes to their tax. And that's hugely controversial. Um, many, many accountants are up in arms about the fact that the government are even considering doing this, never mind the timeframes on which they're basing it. So like two years to migrate three and a half, four million SMBs to digital tax filing. It's a massive, massive undertaking. And, and there's definitely some, some merit in the, the, the voice um, and the concern that's, that's been raised around this, and just in terms of the sheer ambition of it. But, but equally, I think that if you're, if, you're a, if you're an accountant and 
you apply traditional kind of uh, technological thinking to the problem, then you are going to be concerned about it because one of the one of the areas of friction will be how do we get all of what is largely a kind of analog paper based um, bookkeeping world um, and get it digitized and, and do that for all of my clients. And I could have 10 clients, I could have 100 clients, I could have 5,000 clients. Uh, and many of them are not using digital tools today. Um, and I think part, part of the challenge there is clearly there's, there's a huge job of work to be done to migrate millions of people across the digital systems. But actually, um, the filing to the government agency, the creation of tools to enable you to do that is the easy part. The difficult part is actually changing the the, the back-end processes that lead up to filing. Um, and I think um, there's a really interesting opportunity for the job of bookkeeping to become more digital, not just to facilitate the filing to the government um, tax APIs, but actually to drive efficiency into bookkeeping as well. Um, now, I'm going to say that because I'm a technologist and, and if there's an accountant listening into this, they may think, well, you, well obviously you have a kind of um, a vested interest there. But I think that this is an opportunity in the next five years to remodel and rethink what it means to how you run a business. Machine learning should be capable of doing a lot more of that stuff. It shouldn't be a case of taking photos of invoices and receipts um, you made a great point the other day that if you're trading with somebody um, electronically, it's most likely the case that it's top-down. So e-invoicing or electronic data interchange, EDI route, uh, rails have, have generally been top-down. Um, and so if you want to deal with a large retailer, then you have to deal with them digitally on their terms and on their platforms. Very literal, lateral trade between people further down the supply chain is, is digital and electronic. And you made a great point um, the other day in a conversation, it's just unbelievable that if you're trading with somebody and they're running SAP or Oracle or some large enterprise uh, financial management system and they're creating a, a, a purchase um, transaction, a kind of purchase order, they're effectively taking that structured data, um, flattening it down to effectively a photograph or a purchase order, sending it to somebody who then has to kind of take that photograph of a, of a document and then re-kind of... Uh, transpose that back into their own digital systems. Um, and whether that's top-down or lateral, that just doesn't seem to make much sense in this day and age. And so I, while I think there is a lot of um, uh, appropriate kind of concern around just the scale and the speed at which government is moving to digital, you have to think in 10 years, if we're still doing that, then we've missed a trick. Um, and so I think it's going to be challenging, but also really exciting in, in, in terms of rethinking some of those old models that have been around for like 40 years. Yeah, and this gets right to this discussion that's happening around AI and machine learning in the accounting industry at the moment. And we're starting to see a few articles saying accountants are going to go, accountants, am I going to go out of business and that sort of stuff, which which we just don't think is true at all. So when we look at it, you look back, you know, desktop software has been around for 25 years and it only ever got to 10 to 15% market share in, 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 in the markets that it's been in. Then you look at cloud accounting software, and in New Zealand now are about a third of all businesses, so maybe sort of 50%. And uh, you could probably get to 50% of a total market who can use cloud software, but there's still a lot of people where even well-designed cloud software is still too hard. So what we're really fascinated in is this idea of if you have the digital preservation of documents, so that um, purchase order, the invoice that was sent or received from um, SAP, if the digital information is preserved, 
or if we can, you know, use one of our partners like Receipt Bank or something like that and and get the digital information reinstated, then what we're seeing is, is that accounting software and the accounting problem where you have a massive amount of data and a relatively tight domain structure means that we're getting an incredibly high hit rate on machine learning and AI. So the what we see will happen over the next wee while is that businesses won't have to code their transactions. They just need to get that digital information preserved and throw it at the machine. And what we're doing, what we think that's the secret to getting to 100% of the market using this sort of software, they don't have to do accounting at all. All they need to do is get their, their, their digital documents inside these new engines. And what that does is it preserves the role of the accountant and bookkeeper. You know, it's crazy that a landscape gardener is sort of good out there at making patio fences and doing those things. But then we ask them to code their transactions. They've never really been formally trained. So if we can get a better hit rate than an individual person on those codings, and then an accountant or bookkeeper can check what's going on, can recode any transactions that need to be, I think we're creating this place where the market gets a whole lot bigger, but the but the role of an accountant or bookkeeper is preserved and enhanced because they really understand those codings. Yeah, fascinating, and I think um, I'll uh, I'll keep a close eye on on uh, how this develops, and, and we'll, we'll check in on later podcasts on on some of the some of the things that pop up. Listen, um, we're going to run out of time shortly, but before we finish up. Um, did I hear that you managed to smash two iPhones? Yeah. Yeah, so I hadn't uh, cracked a screen for um, six or seven years, then I've cracked two in three days. And uh, so it's two in the last couple of weeks. And um, spent a bit of time frantically yesterday trying to work out how the warranty I paid for last time was work uh, worked. And just fascinating, this whole industry. First of all, it's kind of crazy that a consumer device can completely shatter like that. And um, it's so fragile. Both of them have been just as I'm jumping out of a car and the phone sort of slipped out of my grip. And then the screens have been completely shattered. So interesting to see what they do with the iPhone 8. But the um, the cost to replace these phones is kind of crazy, such a fragile device. So, um, you know, in uh, New Zealand dollars, you're talking about $1,600 for a phone. And when I went back and looked at my invoice, because the when I changed my last one, they said, do you want to get the insurance in case you do accidental breakage? sort of base fee to get a three-year warranty. Um, And then on top of that, and and you couldn't have this on its own, it was another $120 for the um, uh, accidental damage part of it. So on a $1,600 phone, I'd spent $260 with insurance. So then I thought yesterday, okay, well, I'll just go in and see if I can change my phone. And I pay the money and, um, you know, I think there was like a, a... a $75 excess to to change my phone over. And they said, oh, no, no, I'm sorry, sir. You have to leave your phone here and in five days we might get a replacement back, which, uh, of course, for me would be impossible. So, you know, for the first time I'm really seeing Apple gear breaking. Also, my touch bar on my 13-inch broke while I was traveling, so I had to replace that as well. And, you know, it's just, it just it's, uh, it's quite frustrating. You know, you're so dependent on this technology now. And uh, just doesn't seem to be as good as as what it was a few years ago. Yeah, it is more sophisticated. I guess there's more to break. I mean, I remember uh, kind of uh, cars when I was growing up as a kid. Um, there was very little that could actually go wrong with them because they were so basic and so simple. But uh, however many million lines of code there are now in a typical modern car, never mind all of the systems and climate control and sat-nav and everything else. There's just more, more to break, I guess. So um, 
um, I guess it's inevitable that um, with a device as sophisticated as a as a Mac or a or a modern smartphone, um, I guess there's more to break, but it doesn't make it any easier. Yeah, but at, at least you know you can um, everything's backed up on the cloud, and within a few hours you're up and running on a completely different device. So that's all uh, pretty exciting. Hey, just final bit of news. You know, we had lots of uh, compliments from our hitting our million customer milestone. So. Well done to our team in the UK and all over the world for the success that you guys have had. And it's been fascinating how things change. You know, that was a really big milestone for us. And you think about all the business software companies that exist, you know, most of them would measure their customers in tens of thousands. And certainly was a big moment for us to hit that milestone, thinking about a million subscribers, um, you know, millions of people now depend on, on using our software. So, uh, thanks everyone for your kind words. It's it, uh, it's been a huge thing for us, and you know, for us that were around at the start, I remember in our first year, which when we did our IPO, our goal was to get to 1,200 customers, and we were excited when we got one per day, and then it was three per day, and uh, you know, in the last few days, sort of heading up to end of year close, uh, you know, it was thousands. So, very very exciting time, and thanks everybody for your support for that. Yeah, it's a, a huge milestone. And I think, as you said at the beginning, we're not quite at uh, Facebook scale of millions of, of customers um, on the platform. But I think the community dimension is just uh, an incredible part and is a really enjoyable part of, of certainly my involvement um, working in the community, working with uh, you know, thousands and thousands of SMBs and accountants and all the people in the ecosystem. And, and I can't wait until we get to 2 million and then 5 million and see where that goes and what that community will do. Listen, let's uh, let's knock it on the head, and we should try not keep it three months since the since uh, and before we do the next one. Fantastic! Thanks, Gary. Thanks, everybody. See ya.